Hi there, I'm Steve Joy. I'm the Head of Researcher Development at the University of Cambridge, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this latest episode of our RD Audio podcast series. In this recording, I interview Rach Maggs, a freelance training consultant who's been working with researchers and supervisors in the UK and across Europe for the last 18 years. And Rach really specialises in thinking about communication and interpersonal dynamics. And in this discussion, we were focusing on crucial conversations, or in other words, those sometimes difficult conversations that we have in life, but perhaps particularly at work, where we want to be thoughtful about getting our message across and considerate of how other people might feel, and perhaps also where we need to communicate something that doesn't come naturally. So crucial conversations is a process for reflecting on, planning, preparing and delivering a crucial conversation leading to a mutually beneficial outcome. I hope you find it useful. As ever, there are some links to useful resources which we will make available and we would be really pleased to hear from you if you have suggestions for further RD Audio episodes that you would like to hear. So drop us a line, let us know what you think of this one, let us know your ideas for future sessions and we look forward to seeing you soon. So, Rach, hi, thank you so much for joining us today. And you and I have been having some discussions lately about your work with researchers and the kinds of topics that you think are, are coming up a lot in conversation with them, especially during this somewhat strange period of remote and, and distanced working. Um, and you wanted to um, have a discussion today about the importance of conversations with the people we work with. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I've been working in research and development for quite a while now, many years, and what I'm finding is at the end of uh, most sessions or courses that I'm working on is that one, in, one or two individuals come up to me and they want to talk about the challenging situations that they're experiencing. So that can be something to do with workload, clash with a fellow researcher, issues around a lack of resource, support or recognition. And what seems to be the common thread with all of those conversations is that the situations they're finding themselves in require a difficult conversation, you know, those kind of tricky, challenging ones. And that if those conversations don't take place, that um, things could get worse. So my sense was that it would be really helpful to just have a look at how to manage those difficult conversations a little better. Because I think they're so crucial for our day-to-day -day day -day communication um, in the workplace, but also really helpful for our uh, personal lives as well. So th that's my thinking. Um, and really what I wanted to talk about is um, the work of a particular company called Vital Smarts, um, whose, whose methodology I use quite a lot. And um, as we go through our chat today, I'm probably going to use the term crucial conversations because that's a vital smarts term and talk about um, the work that they do and how they advise managing these kind of conversations. Okay, fantastic. So I think probably the most useful thing is before we get into the detail of how we're going to have one of these conversations, we need to do a bit of assessment. How do I know when I need to have a crucial conversation? So does the model tell us when we should decide, okay, now it's time? Yeah, it does. So really handily. Um, so uh, there are four, there are kind of four watch points around the sort of definition of a crucial conversation. So it involves two or more people. The emotions are generally strong. 
the stakes are high, there are opposing, there are opposing op opinions, and the outcome can have a significant impact on the lives of those involved because there's a risk of a negative consequence. So that's sort of definition of a crucial conversation. Now, how to know if you're in one? I think we've all had those conversations or we've been in those situations where we've put off a tricky conversation or um, it's made us feel uncomfortable or we get emotional, we might get quite teary or angry at the thought of it, or perhaps we've tried it and it didn't go well. And then there's also the other, um, the other situation where actually we feel stuck because if we keep quiet to keep the peace, nothing gets resolved. And if we speak up, we run the risk of, of absolutely destroying the relationship with the person we need to have the conversation with. So those are kind of pointers as to how we know if it's a crucial conversation we need to have. So I'm thinking in a, in a research context then, um, that could be things like um, disputes with people over um, use of uh, resources, access to equipment, or maybe not feeling heard, not feeling listened to, in sharing one's ideas in meetings and uh, feeling criticised or talked over. I, I mean, does that seem to be the sort of context that, that you're alluding to? Yeah, absolutely. And those are definitely the kind of conversations that I'm always having at the end of a session or during a course when I'm working with um, researchers. So, yeah, those those are definitely the situations that um, chime with my experience. OK, so it sounds like there's a need for people to uh, identify crucial conversations and to plan for them. So can you move us into thinking about how we could go about having a crucial conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So the work, um, the work of Vital Smarts and the, the other other work is available. Um, they um, they break down the approach into three steps, and they they urge anybody having a crucial conversation to consider what happens before, what needs to happen during, and what happens afterwards. And the the really crucial thing to underline is that so many so many of us uh, miss out that bit before and we want to skip straight to having that conversation and actually there's so there's so much that we need to do before we even utter a word to the other person that we're having an issue with perhaps and so to underline that vital smarts um, and many other good burgers who talk about difficult conversations say that actually you need to understand that the majority of work needs to be done by you on you before you go anywhere near speaking the first word of a conversation. So I think it's really vital to set that in context. So, so before, um, what we're looking to do is we're looking to consider you and we're looking to consider the preparation you need to do. So the first points really are, if it's, if it's a conversation that hasn't crept up on you and is not happening in the moment, Okay, try not to be rushed into that sort of ad hoc conversation where you're caught off guard um, and go away, extend an invite, you know, grab that person in the corridor, send an email, whatever it is, and find a time in the future in a neutral location where you can, you can both go and have a chat. So that's the first thing is set it up, set it up right. And I'm guessing then that it's really important to set it up in a way which is mutually convenient. So yeah, I could imagine a situation in which I've done loads and loads of thinking about the conversation I need to have. And then I happen upon someone and I try to make the conversation happen there and then. But what you're saying is there has to be a, an agreement to meet for the conversation. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. If at all possible. Now, it's not always possible because these things can creep up on us and we can be in the middle of a conversation and then suddenly things take a turn and you find yourself in a crucial conversation. But if at all possible, 
it's to plan it's to plan to have that conversation so you grab the person in the corridor and say it'd be really handy if we could just have a have a quick chat about um equipment booking or whatever it is you know so um i'll send you an email later let's find a date yeah that kind of thing um because then it sort of sets it it it, it sets the premise for, for what's coming, yeah. So, so putting, all of that, um, putting all of that into play, so getting ready for it. Now, you've got the date, you know when it's happening, you, you know where it's happening, really, really fundamental stuff. And then the next step, the next stage is really to work on you, okay? And the first thing is to consider the story you're telling yourself about the situation. And this is kind of like a human condition so if we use the example of, say, someone in the workplace who for the last two weeks has been taking two hours for lunch every single day, and you haven't interacted with that person, but immediately describing that situation based on your previous experience, your connection to that person, you're going to a certain place. You are telling yourself a story about that two hour lunch break. Okay, And it might not necessarily be true. And so what we do is that we take that story and then we assume that we're looking at a factual event because we've retold ourselves that story so many times because we haven't interacted with the other person. So it's really important first to unpack that story. Okay, so what exactly are the facts? And actually, what are the emotions that are coming into play? So if the colleague is taking the two hour lunch break, is that making you feel irate? Are you feeling selfish because they're leaving, you know, everybody else to cover that extra hour? And it's really important to acknowledge the emotions that you're experiencing because that can influence your perception. Okay. And then it can also influence how you, how you handle the conversation if you eventually have one. So some honest acknowledgement. Okay. So what's the story and what are you, what are your emotions? I absolutely agree. And I think sometimes it can feel a bit uncomfortable to bring emotion into the equation because it feels like the best way to have a difficult conversation is to be resolutely objective, factual, dispassionate. But actually, that often doesn't reflect the reality. Because like you say, we're, we're, we are always negotiating our, uh, uh, the accounts we're telling ourselves of what's happened and our emotions towards it. So I think it's quite important to, to say it's, it's legitimate to ask, how am I feeling about this? Yeah, and, and there's a really beautiful therapeutic tool, actually, that if, if, one, if, if you find yourself stuck, and it's the, it's the concept of the unsent letter. So if there is a particularly thorny and challenging situation, is actually to write a letter to the person concerned and, and, and just actually download everything, but never send the letter. Because actually sometimes we don't even acknowledge to ourselves how we feel. And it can be surprising that when you sort of do the stream of consciousness unsent letter, so much can come out. And, and it's really helpful to unpack that um, before the conversation, because you don't want all this sort of, um, uh, sort of unguarded emotion pouring into the mix because it obscures the facts. So those, those are really important. So what's the story? What are your emotions? And definitely acknowledge those. Those are kind of top tier things. And then other bits of um, honest acknowledgement is why is the conversation challenging for you? Why haven't you had it already? Yeah, really, really. And so some honest stuff, right? And this is the work on you. This is what I was talking about that, you know, we've got to go to, we've got to go to this place to have a decent conversation. What assumptions 
uh, are you drawing as well? Because again, the two hour lunch break, oh, they're, they're lazy and they're selfish. You know, it could be that that person is uh, doing some shopping for an elderly parent. It could be that they need some medical treatment. You know, there are all sorts of reasons and we're drawing some assumptions on, on what we think we're seeing. Other things are, um, what are your fears and concerns? What are your fears and concerns about having the conversation? And what are your fears and concerns about the actual situation? So acknowledging those as, to, as well. So some, some real honesty. And then in certain situations as well, asking yourself the, the question, how have I contributed? How have I contributed to that situation? Because what we have a tendency to do is we, we play a blame game and we apportion blame and we say, actually, the other person is completely in the wrong and everything that I believe is one right and ergo it makes me right. Uh, so, uh, you know, just some acknowledgement that we might have contributed in some way. So there's all that stuff around, around you, your story, your emotions, why is it challenging, assumptions, fears and concerns and contribution. And then the other thing that's just missed out is what about the other person? Because there's all this stuff and, and you might know very readily about what you think and what you feel but actually, where might they be? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are their needs and what are their fears? It's so interesting the phrase you used a few moments ago about honest acknowledgement. And I think that the list that you gave there of ways that we can honestly acknowledge how we feel about a situation that feels really, really powerful to me. And the point you just made there as well about how might the other person be feeling um, making time to do that and, and doing that kind of empathetic work, but also holding back a little and saying, um, there's every chance I'm wrong here. Like, I don't know what this person is feeling, but I'm, I'm going through a thought experiment about what they might be feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's, um, there's a, a, a really valuable thing to do when we've gone through the, the sort of final steps of the preparation. A valuable thing to do is check, check in with somebody else who is completely objective to the situation, is not even connected. And just say run it through run it through sort of a, as a sort of situational thing and just say that this is happening there's this person and and it's really interesting to get input from somebody who is not involved at all because the stories we tell ourselves the emotions that we go to based on what we think of fact can often not be the reality so it's it's really easy it's really good to have that counterbalance of someone who's completely objective so we've got all of that checking in about where, where are we at, what are our stories? And then, and then it's kind of moving in to sort of planning, planning a little bit more. So with the conversation, what are, we, what are you actually looking to achieve? Okay, what are you looking to achieve for the relationship, for the situation, and maybe for yourself? Yeah, so having that idea, so it's kind of, it's almost like um, going into a negotiation, knowing, knowing where your markers are. Okay, so what is it that you really want out of that out of that conversation? Because that really helps too. Because a, a, another thing that uh, that people tend to do is they just they just feel it so viscerally, viscer so acutely <laughs> that um, they go in and they they all they all they want to do is offload, and they don't really know where they want this conversation to end up, and what they want to do is apportion blame and offload, and just feel better themselves. So actually going back is what do you want to achieve and also just remembering what that other person might be dealing with thinking feeling needing and then possible actions that might need to come from that you might need to take as a result of the relation of, of the conversation rather and then also i think really interestingly once you've once you've 
worked out what it is you're aiming for, what the actions might be, how, how do you need to behave in that conversation? Think about that, because actually, if you want to maintain that relationship and you want to have a good working relationship and you want to have a really reasoned conversation and you'd like to get to a situation where you understand and appreciate, appreciate, appreciate each other well, how, what do you need to demonstrate in that conversation? And I think that's, that's also sometimes a missing link as well, because we, we don't think about our own behaviour. I wonder if you could give us some examples of the kinds of behaviours you think would, are often useful in crucial conversations. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, which moves us on to the during, which uh, I, can, I can talk about as well. But it's, again, before you've even uttered a word, um, the, the general thinking is for a successful outcome, there are, there are two features in a, in a crucial conversation. It's how you are, so that's your body language and your and the tone of your voice and your sort of demeanor. And it's also what you say. So the language you use as well. So there are, you know, there are some deliberate terms that might be sort of inflammatory or uh, exacerbate the situation or feel like blame is being apportioned to the other person. So it's, it's those kind of things. So all the generally really good, uh, you know, open body language, neutral, uh, nonverbal communication of just nodding, no interrupting, um, listening, you know, absolutely vitally important. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, in the during phase as well. So I'll cover that bit a little bit more. Um, but before we leave the before section, just to say that there are some amazing planners online. So, um, which we can add in the notes section of, of the podcast. Um, but also, if you can't wait for that, um, if you Google uh, difficult conversation planners, there are some brilliant ones that can take you step by step and ask you some really salient questions about how to get yourself ready for this. So that's before. Um, moving into during? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm braced and ready now for, for the conversation itself. Yeah, so we've got our date, our time, we've sorted ourselves out, we've done all this planning, we've checked it through with somebody completely objective, we are good to go. Um, still, no words, no words, okay? Uh, walking towards the room, ready to have the conversation. And before there are any words uttered, always remember, there are some kind of uh, key points to keep in mind, is to stay in charge of you. Stay in charge of the purpose and stay in charge of your emotions, because this is when things can get a little bit, um, uh, go a little bit awry. And remember, before even entering the room, the conversation is not about assigning blame. Be curious. Uh, remember, what, what, is, what is it the other person's got going on? And that, that it's a learning opportunity. And if you permit me, Steve, just to add a little quote here, um, Brenny Brown, a social scientist, he's written many, many fabulous books around leadership and uh, being vulnerable and shame. What she talks about with tough conversations is she uses this quote and she says, I'm not here to be right, I'm here to get it right. So going in with that kind of mentality, yeah, of uh, sharing and discussing and create, creating an understanding. So before anything is even said, having, having that in mind. And I think that really links us back to the point about one's emotions and, you know, why that it, why it's not just about preparing a, a logical, reasoned argument, because that's about winning. That's about having the, the absolutely winning right argument. And actually, conversations like this, the ones we're talking about, there's always an emotional component and you disregard that at your peril. 
Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely, and and the reason and the reasons for that emotional component as well. So yeah, you're here to get it right, which I think is brilliant. And so the aim, so the aim of the conversation, two key aims is to create dialogue and allow for safety. And in the Vital Smarts methodology, that the more they say the more dialogue that that two people, three people, four people have, is the safer that everybody feels. So they're more likely to disclose. And then the more disclosure, the more dialogue. So it's a circular thing. Yeah, and it just promotes better understanding. So those, those are the aims. Okay, so, um, so going in with all of that stuff, still, we've said nothing. The conversation hasn't even happened. So you can, can you see all the work? There was so much pre-work before we've even uttered a word or, or gone into the room. And then I think the other thing that's really interesting is about when the conversation actually starts and how people sort of divide up the airtime, if you like, in the conversation. And so the advice is that if, if you're the one that's requested the conversation is to start, with, to start with the opener. You know, something along the lines of, I'd like to talk to you about equipment booking, as I think we might have different ideas. It'd be great if you'd share yours. Yeah, so it's that kind of invitation to talk. So you're inviting the first per the other person to share first. Yeah, so, um, and again, there's loads of um, brilliant openers uh, that are available too, and I'll put a, I'll put a link uh, to those uh, after the podcast as well. So you're in the room, you've opened up, uh, and then your only job is to listen to understand, observe, observe for those safety measures. So making sure that people don't get um, angry or violent or, or silent and to demonstrate respect. So that comes back to the how you are. So sitting, listening, nodding, lots of nonverbal communication um, and, and just letting that person have their say, De letting, them, letting them talk about their, their side of events. And to me, there's always something really interesting about, um, in some ways, how listening gets presented as being an incredibly difficult skill. And actually, I think listening, it, it is, of course, it can be, but actually not talking can be the most difficult skill, especially for researchers and academics. What we're really talking about is not while the other person's talking, I think not not scripting in your head what your next intervention is going to be or you know ah well this person said something and that's logically incorrect so i'm now going to make the winning move here or they slightly misspoke there and that isn't quite true and and so for me the the listening thing that takes a lot of conscious discipline is is waiting to speak wait hearing all of what the person is saying before i jump in with my nicely prepared answer and i actually stopped listening to two-thirds of what they were saying Exactly. And it's that it's that whole thing. So the phrase of listening to understand, you're not listening to then have your turn. That's not because that's that's basically hearing, um, you know, so listen, listening is like a, I call it like a full body event. And, and if you're doing it properly, you'll be exhausted. That's how you know, because actually you're trying to keep hold of the thread. You're trying to understand the emotion and you're trying to watch for all of the uh, body language of the other person as well. So it's, it's, it's a sort of global thing. It's a full body event. And that's, and that's what you should be doing. There should be no other, there shouldn't be any noise coming from you at all. You just, your job is to listen and make sure that person feels safe and respected. And if they do, they will disclose. And so the conversation, the conversation can be really fruitful. So, um, 
And there's a really interesting expression with some of some of the um, work that's been done on crucial conversations when they talk about allowing their uh, your partner to to explain their side of events is saying allow them to continue with this with their story until they have run out of energy and i think that's a really interesting thing because that's energy is like loaded with emotion and fact and all sorts of, and 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 feeling and all, all sorts of things and so it's when you're in the room and you might be having one of these conversations you can you can tell and even if you're having a, a sort of one of these conversations over uh, Zoom or Skype or something, it's also possible to tell, providing you've got video switched on, you know, when, when, when that emotion, when that energy is petering out. And when that happens, that's actually, that's actually your signal. That's actually your signal to sort of get ready. And so, and not get ready to, to explain your side of the events and the situation, but it's your, it's, it's your signal to get ready to acknowledge the contribution they've just made. So perhaps how important it is for them, how difficult it is for them to explain that to you, because it doesn't, you know, these conversations aren't necessarily easy for everyone. So firstly, acknowledging that, and then to demonstrate your listening and your respect is to kind of summarize back to them what you've heard. And that is an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool when you are trying to have these conversations because people really feel heard and if they feel heard they are more likely to collab collaborate on to a, towards a common goal so that's massively important and i um, one of the things i i've heard um, a few other people say which has always struck me as really interesting is that you don't make someone feel heard by asking further um interrogating questions that actually that's a, that's a very different thing than listening and acknowledging it's um, so when you're saying like uh, showing understanding, it's it, it's sort of narrating back what you've understood and what you picked up, but it's not asking them. And exactly when was that 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 happened? And mm. who else was in the room? And what did precisely did they say in response? Yeah, absolutely. Does that sound so right? It's basically a summary. So so um, you know what I've heard is X Y Z, and it seems like that was really that was really challenging for you, or that was really difficult for you. And it, it's great that you've been able to share that. It just seems always really interesting to me that when we're talking about these high stakes, potentially also emotional interactions, we're asking people to use a very different skill set to the one that gets valued in academic circles. Because if you think about by analogy with conferences or seminars, you acknowledge your, that you've listened by asking challenging follow-up questions. You, know, you wouldn't narrate back someone's paper to them and say that must have been really difficult to do that work. Um, but actually, with, and, and I suppose what I'm talking about is the agility that we need to have deploying different communication styles, which of course we all do, but consciously deploying different communication styles in different situations and recognizing that questions can often make people feel unheard yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, and I think in the context that you're um, speaking about is also, it can be a demonstration of one's intellect. So like, let me show you how much I know about this. And actually at the, at the end, uh, at that point in a crucial conversation where your partner has just shared their, their side of, of events, it, it, it isn't about the challenging, it isn't about the double down uh, to kind of actually, no, tell me how you really feel, because they just have. And so it's just, it's to acknowledge that. And it is, it's a completely different skill set. And I, I think that's part of the challenge because actually it gets underestimated because what happens is as human beings on a day-to-day -day basis, 
is that we almost we communicate almost on a sort of automatic level and that can be why we get these kind of conversations so wrong because we don't understand that we we need to pivot and we need to pivot our skill set and actually it's it's a very much more um uh empathetic way of of being with someone rather than showing how much you know yeah so does, does that make sense absolutely so um yeah so so then let's say uh your partner your partner's shared their version of the story and how they feel and you've acknowledged that and then then it's your turn finally <laughs> there is a moment for, for you to share your, your side of the situation and so you've you've acknowledged their what you've heard from them you and how difficult it might have been and summarized that back and and then a really beautiful way to segue into uh your chance to speak is say that from what you've said i appreciate and understand your position now but for me it was like this or i think it's like this yeah so you're kind of just gently taking that person and saying that there there are there are two versions of this and so it would be really lovely if you could if you could now reciprocate and listen to me and so when you're in that space and it's your turn uh, the advice is always to base it on facts so we talked about we talked about this before with the person in the, of the with the two hour lunch break so basing it on the facts and then explain the conclusions that you've reached based on the facts um, and and that can sometimes be where the misunderstanding has come because you might have reached the, a wrong conclusion. And in doing so, um, and I think this is, uh, this is a valuable uh, tip for life, is to use I statements. It's like, I've, I've misunderstood, or I saw, or I think, I, I might be missing something. Because those I statements are so much less inflammatory than you did, or you were. And that and that can immediately push someone into a defensive and agitated state where and then and then the conversation spirals into a different place. So it's always about trying to trying to keep the inflammation low and base it all on facts. So and really the aim when you've explained your your version of the situation is to then is to then try and strive for a, a mutual purpose. So it's focusing on the similarities rather than the differences. So say, for example, there was a disagreement over meeting rooms. It might be that actually the similarity is that you're both looking for private spaces. The disagreement isn't necessarily over the meeting room. So look at, look at the things that align you rather than the things that drive you apart. It's always struck me that that's one of the most difficult things that one has to really hang on to in these conversations is we can put so you know you talked about I love the phrase that the majority of the work is done by you on you of course sometimes the result of that is that we we prepare and prepare and prepare and then we, we say what it is we want to say and we expect an immediate okay well now this person will change all their behavior because of what mm -hmm. I've said and of course it doesn't work that way it has to be you know your turn my turn and now we negotiate yeah Absolutely. And, and there's some really, um, I think there's some really lovely ways into that and also understanding that um, there are some mutual truths. Yeah. So it might be, you know, so that actually they can, they can coexist. It's just that you see things differently. So remembering that, but looking for the similarities. 
So expressions such as, can we try to understand? Can we explore? What could we do differently? Um, how do you see us resolving this? Um, what could I have done differently, perhaps? Or what would you like to happen in the future? All of those sort of open questions that then sort of elicit um, collaboration and conversation. So those sort of things. And there's, so I talked about the mutual truth and um, there's, there's a lot of advice around using the yes and stance. So that actually it's one person A can have their position and that can exist and that is a truth. But then person B can also have their truth and it can exist. So, but you've got to acknowledge both of them. So it's sort of like, I understand that you left the meeting feeling disregarded. I also walked away from that same meeting feeling a bit heard and dismissed. So they can exist in parallel. So it's just saying, okay, we don't, we don't have to fully agree, but we need to accept each other's truths. Yeah, as a, as a thing. So that hopefully what that does in crucial conversation terms is that creates uh, what they could term a pool of shared understanding. So you keep the dialogue flowing uh, you watch for safety, demonstrate respect, aim for a mutual purpose. Uh, and so it's all pouring into this pool. And then you kind of feel heard, respected, and can aim towards resolving the issue. So um, at, at that point, if it feels, if it feels that there, have been some dis there has been a good discussion and there is understanding and there, there is a willingness to resolve and those questions around how can we do it differently are getting answered. It's then about determining the actions to take based on that. Now, depending on the situation, they can be all sorts of things. You know, they can be uh, to check in with each other around equipment booking, um, have a chat before meeting bookings are happening, or, um, you know, we're going to try and meet once a week and give each other feedback, that kind of stuff. Um, so determining those actions, making sure they're assigned to whoever in the conversation, and then most importantly, at the end of that, is, is to thank the other person for their time and that, it was, and that it was really important and that it was good to be able to resolve the issue. Because that sort of seals it off in a sort of nice, you know, for want of a better analogy, is a sort of, you know, you've, you've, done the, you've done the bow up on the parcel on the present. So it's finished it off. I know that it's recommended in some places that you should make a note of the actions that you've agreed, you know, in a sense, almost kind of formalize them by sending an email or something. I, I wonder how you feel about that advice. I think it depends on the situation. I think uh, if it's to do with something that is um, quite process driven and it's about um, division of labor or work and it's uh, so next time you will take the meeting minutes and I will produce the report or whatever and they're really tangible actions then I think that recording that and sending it can be helpful. Um, if it's a more sort of emotive issue and it's around a personality clash, that might feel a little too formal. So I would suggest um, feeling, feeling your way with that and whether the situation demands that kind of formality. Makes perfect sense. I, yeah, I think sometimes an email could feel like a very transactional almost slightly banal way to acknowledge a, a, a difficult conversation, especially if there's been an, an element of disclosure and mm. people sharing how they really feel about something. 
Absolutely. And we've all had that sort of uh, situation where we've had one of those almost like a sort of heart to heart. And then what's happened is someone sent an email and, and it's almost like the disclosure and the huge amount of emotion and input is not really acknowledged. It sort of feels a bit sort of one dimensional. You know, it's sort of, oh, OK, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> I, I can think of an email I sent uh, some time ago that was quite long. It was very personal. That something had happened and I wanted to really acknowledge how I'd seen it, but also what my responsibility was. was. And I got a two sentence reply that said, um, thank you for letting me know. Um, I think we should draw a line under this. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that make you feel, Steve? <laughs> it wasn't totally the reaction I was hoping for. <laughs> And, th and then, yeah, and, and he's, interestingly, that, that, can, that can put you off, um, um, you know, from future sort of engagements in the same way. So would you want to go and have another conversation like that, that was maybe bearing your soul? You know, if that's the response, it, it can set up all sorts of behaviours. So um, I think it's about cutting, cutting one's cloth accordingly, you know, so if actually maybe have the conversation. Do we need to do we need to kind of follow up on this through email? What what works for you? You know, so so conversations had agreed the goals um, and the actions, uh, thanked each other. It's been fruitful and lovely and all of those things. And then following the conversation, you know, stick to your word. Work on what you agreed that you would work on. Follow up with each other and actually keep the dialogue open and not necessarily about that issue, but build the relationship, you know, because if you, if you, if you crossed or come, come over this massive hurdle, you know, it's like maximize that and kind of, and, and, and work together to value the relationship. You know, that's what, that's what I'd say, because it can feel quite exposing. It can feel quite wounding to have some of these conversations. You know, so to kind of progress and move forward with the relationship is is really important post conversation. And not to be, um, I, I don't in any way wish this to sound cynical. I mean this about sort of positive cultures, but you know, the, the research is a small world, and if you if you allow a relationship to become dysfunctional or toxic, and you don't do this work and don't sort of value the relationship and try to build on it, you could well find yourself. Uh, meeting that person on the other side of an interview um, panel for funding or for a job, or you could find that, you know, you're the collaborator they didn't want to work with, or they could be peer reviewing your papers one day just because you're contemporaries in the lab or in the department right now. And I think, and so for me, it's also about wanting to go through life, not leaving damaged relationships behind, of course, but it's also, there's, there is, I think, a practical element of this that we're building relationships that may well become important to us in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's kind of underestimating that at, at your peril, because as you say, it's a really, really small community. And then depending on your research, which could be even more niche, it could be even smaller, you know? So yeah, absolutely. It's a very, very, um, very sensible advice. So, um, so that's kind of basically having the conversation. So um, hopefully that's kind of given given a sort of framework and some hooks to kind of hang hang uh, your preparation on. Absolutely, uh, this has been super helpful. And again, I've I've said already, I love the thing about that the majority of work needs to be done by us on us in preparation before we've uttered a word. And that process of honest acknowledgement that makes space for feelings. Also, I think the thing about um, 
empathizing with what might be going on for that other person without becoming too confident that we're telling ourselves an accurate story. And then the whole thing about listening to understand um, uh, as a way to kind of to, to build into the conversation to then find those uh, points of mutual understanding and sort of building some shared trust. It, it's, it's a very persuasive, very eloquent model. I'm so grateful to you for bringing it to us today. We're almost out of time, but I just wondered whether you wanted to wrap up by saying from your point of view, what do you think really taking the time and the effort to, to pursue crucial conversations will really do for us? What's, what's the benefit of this, do you think, for, in, in your own sense? So, um, lovely question. And I think what, it, what, what, they, what they do and, ha and through having those conversations, I think it just creates a brilliant awareness. It creates an awareness between you and that other person. So we've talked about that relationship. But also what it can do is extend beyond that and, and help you to build awareness with others that you might be working with. And it allows you to have create an ability to have better conversations because actually if you have more dialogue and, and safety is present, there's more disclosure. So you are having better conversations at a deeper level. You know, and also in some instances, it allows those conversations to be sort of more efficient because you're used to you're used to the dialogue with that person. And a massive, massive win is not to have that knot or that in the stomach or that dreaded sick feeling, you know, of just, oh, this is, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have to be in a meeting with this person, you know, and kind of carrying around that burden of that unresolved issue. Because actually, if you can head towards a crucial conversation, you won't need to feel like that, or you'll only need to feel like that for a very small amount of time. And then what it does do as well is it, I think it brings a huge amount of confidence to sort of experiment more widely. So if you start to have these conversations and they go well, then you can broaden that out to a, a lot of the conversations you're just having day to day. Not all of them will be crucial, but maybe you'll listen a little bit better. You know, maybe you'll adjust your body language, you know, and you can practice on the margins with those tiny things that actually need to be ramped up in a crucial conversation. But what I do want to do is just add a caveat to, uh, to this whole conversation is that we've talked through um, the process, the methodology, and it won't allow you to be a master at this overnight. So the rule is to practice, 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 and start with maybe one or two things that you would like to change in one of these difficult conversations. And always, always try to aim for progress and not perfection. So have a, just have a go and be brave. Progress, not perfection. I absolutely love that. That feels like a brilliant place to end as well. Thanks again so much for your time, Rach, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. All right, thanks, Steve. <laughs>